On this episode of AvTalk, the FAA releases the Flight Standardization Board report for the 737 MAX, which details the training pilots will need before they can fly the aircraft. And we are joined by Steve Giordano of Jet Test and Transport to learn about a fascinating niche in the aviation industry. Hello and welcome to episode 95 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz and we're slowly, ever so shortly coming closer to episode 100 for which we have nothing planned. I mean, we had plenty of things, but we had so much planned. I have lots of things planned for the past eight months of my life. Man, we had so many things planned this year. This year was going to be such a great year and then, you know, not. And you know, speaking of was going to be such a good year, it has been over 250 days since I have been on an airplane. I think I'm 220. I could ask Google now, but that might take a moment. I yeah. think it was March 6th was my last day, which I think is like 220 days or something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, mine was uh, January 29th. So, you know. It's been a while. It's been a while. So anyway, we, it was going to be a great year. You know, it's whatever. Next episode. Moving on. <laughs> what an intro. I know. Now right? that we've set the tone, let's talk about the 737 MAX. Sure. Oh, God. We should, at the end of this year, rank our transitions. Ooh, th- that was a good one, though, I think. That was a good one. That was a good one. Please, by all means, fill us in. Well, the FAA released its, uh, I got to scroll all the way up to the top to get the full name, the Flight Standardization Board Report, Revision 17, date XXXXXXXX. I think they forgot to fully fill out the form there. But this is basically the proposal for the pilot flight training that will need to be conducted before a pilot can get back in the left or right seat of a 737 MAX. And it is not insignificant. There are two components to it. There is a ground training component, of course, that will take several hours to complete. They have to do training on runaway stabilizer, speed trim fail, stabilizer out of trim, airspeed unreliable, altitude disagree, angle of attack disagree, Specific training for things like dealing with multiple alerts and alarms and notifications going on at the same time, since that was one of the contributing factors to both accidents, was that there was just so much going on in the flight deck at the same time that it was completely overwhelming for the crew. Some other things that go over the change from the NG or the classic to the max, like Ian, you pointed out the there is landing gear knob retraining, I think. Knob and yes, yes, there is. That the, the physical location of some switches on the max, they have been moved. So they're doing some ground training to get pilots familiar with that in case they need to access it quickly. But then it comes to the flight training, which remember one of the, if not the biggest selling point of the MAX, especially to airlines like Southwest, was that pilots would not need specialized flight training. They would not need simulator time to get to upgrade from the NG to the MAX. Well, here's what they'll have to do in said full motion flight simulator. Five key competencies, demonstration of the MCAS activation for each pilot, which will simulate MCAS activation during an impending or full stall and recovery demonstration during manual flight in a clean configuration. They'll also have to, in step two, 
simulate a runaway stabilizer condition that requires the pilot to use manual stabilizer trim, which I believe was a big issue in the Ethiopian crash and that their airspeed was too high that they couldn't manually trim after turning off the electronic systems. Step three is the use of manual stabilizer during approach, go around, and level off. Step four, a cross full flight simulator, I believe that is, trim monitor activation demonstration by either pilot acting as pilot flying. And the last is dealing with an erroneous high angle of attack on takeoff that leads to unreliable airspeed condition accomplished by either pilot or acting as pilot flying. And that demonstrates that the flight deck, all of the alerts going off, the visual, the tactile, the audio alerts going off associated with that failure and how to deal with it. So this is a lot of time in the simulator, only two of which, two of these five points can be done in a 737NG simulator. So the 678 or 900, while three of the five key points must be done in an actual 737 MAX simulator, of which I'm assuming there still are not that many in the world. So it's going to be a pretty slow roll to get pilots in the simulator and trained up and authorized to operate the MAX once again. Yeah. And we talked in the last episode, I think, or an episode before that, where we discussed American Airlines timeline as far as pilot training, commencing the pilot training. And they had initially scheduled things for November. Those procedures have now been pushed back because of the period in which these standards are being issued. They're not finalized. It's a draft report. It'll continue to move through the process. So there's still a long way to go before you know pilots are training on this aircraft and before it returns to service. I mean, right now, it looks like the beginning of next year seems reasonable. But then again, when this all happened, we said the aircraft would be back in the air in roughly two to three weeks. Yeah, I do remember the days of getting press releases from a couple of airlines here in the US saying, it'll be back in two weeks. It'll be back in three weeks. It'll be back in five weeks. And they kept pushing and pushing and pushing it. And here we are. How many months later are we at this point? I mean, we're, you know, what are we, 19 months, I think? Measure, we're going to have to start measuring it in multiple years. Yes. It is not inconceivable that the 737 MAX will return to service, you know, return to flying passengers more than two years after it was grounded. Um, Good thing there is no immediate need for the aircraft right now, since the world has plenty of extra aircraft to go around. This is true. This is true. Didn't see that coming when it was grounded. No, no, we, we sure didn't. We spent a good chunk of time discussing the exact opposite, you know, how the 737 MAX was going to be missed. What are we going to do? Where is this capacity going to come from? Older aircraft are going to be staying in service longer. All of that, no. No longer valid. Nope. Any discussion that we had about the effects of uh, the 737 MAX's withdrawal from service on worldwide fleets has completely been upended. So who knows at this point? What we do know is that the FAA administrator, Stephen Dixon, took his test flight in the 737 MAX last week. That was a combination promise kept and publicity stunt. Hey, he said it was not a publicity stunt. He he said it was not. How dare you? How dare you? Fair, fair. He dare I to contradict the, the FAA administrator. However- If it wasn't a part of the certification process, then what was it? 
Sure. So I understand his thinking in that he said at the beginning of this process of recertification that he wouldn't research because it is up to him. He wouldn't recertify the aircraft until he had personally flown it. He was keeping a promise. And I get that as kind of a buck stops here part. And, and I, you know, I understand that. And, and I frankly support his, you know, his actions in that respect. On the other hand, did he need to do it? I don't know. I don't think there was any harm done in him flying. No, of course not. So that happened. He said he liked what he saw. He also said that they're a long way from, you know, approving the recertification of the aircraft. There are many steps to go. And so we're, you know, continuing to move through those steps and and we'll follow along just as everyone else is when we finally get there. And then we'll have a whole host of other issues about how we, you know, get all those airplanes delivered, upgraded, how those pilots actually get trained on the aircraft and then when it finally returns to service. So there's, I mean, you know, if you had some sort of bet on when the MAX was returning to service, I don't think that's a smart thing to do at this point, but they're moving in the right direction. No, and I'm pretty sure every bet made at the beginning of this saga has been lost at this point, unless your bet was for never and which you're still in the running. Yeah. I mean, and there were certainly some bets on that. So that's the 737 MAX. The other recent discussion that we've had with Boeing has been the 787 line. We had John Oster on the show two episodes ago talking about the recent quality issues with the 787 and also the study that was ongoing about moving the 787 line to South Carolina. Of course, as we mentioned, that wasn't really a study of, you know, if it was a study of when, and now it has been officially announced that the 787 line is moving in its entirety to the North Charleston, South Carolina facility. And it's not all that distant in the future. We're not talking five, 10 years. This is, what was it? It was 2021, right? I believe our, our friend Ned Russell did the math, and the last aircraft to enter final assembly in Everett will be a Hawaiian Airlines 787 in April of next year. So, so it's soon. It's real soon. That's only, what, five months away at this point? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're definitely coming up on you know, this happening. Yeah, it's surprising. There's, there's a chance that I won't make it out to the West Coast or to Everett again to see another 787 on the line by the time they close it down. And what does that mean for Everett is still a big question mark. And it was kind of disingenuous of Boeing to say, well, you still have the 747 line and the 767 line, and that's pretty much it. And this 777 line, of course, but the 747 line, we already know that's being shut down. The 76 is freighters only at this point, really, and the tanker for the US Air Force that we won't have to get into that issue. And then the 777, which is now the 777X, which is fairly unwanted aircraft. So I think it's completely reasonable to say that Boeing's future in Everett and the Puget Sound as, as a whole at this point is bleak at best. Yeah. And I mentioned this on the tweet machine. Ah, the old Tweety box. Exactly. I thought that Boeing's messaging on this was a bit disingenuous because they did two things when they announced this consolidation of, of production. One, they spun it as a COVID-related 
lack of demand creating these conditions that would allow them or force them to consolidate the 787 assembly in South Carolina. And then they mentioned, like you said, they said, this does not change our commitment to the Puget Sound where the 737, 747, 767, and 777 and more are assembled. I'm not sure what the and more really relates to besides you know, kind of ancillary things, unless they're referring to, to the P8, which is a 737 variant, I, I guess. But you know, like you said, the 747, that's scheduled to end. The 737 isn't manufactured at Everett, though there is some talk that they can move production there. The 767 is kind of humming along. Obviously, the 777X is existent officially, but you know, like you said, it, it's not loved the way the the current triple seven three hundred ER you know is as far as orders goes, and who knows what's you know what's going to happen over the next you know X number of years. Boeing has said that you know the demand for new aircraft is going to be reduced, and this is the first time they've reduced their forecasting models. So this is you know. Something that we don't know what, how it's going to affect Boeing's activities in Washington, and that remains to be seen. Yeah, I can't see them staying in the Renton facility. I can very clearly see them consolidating operations to Everett, selling the Renton facility as the property value there is probably quite high. They could probably make a, a pretty good sum of money as they already have. They've sold off quite a bit of property in Renton. And take the the space that they just don't need in Everett anymore, and uproot the seven three from Renton, which is pretty amazing to think, because it, it's every seven three seven that has ever been produced has been produced in the same facility in Renton, has taken off from the same runway in Renton, and now it, it's not out of the realm of possibility to see them created, uh, built up in Everett. Yeah, I mean, so we'll follow along. Of course, but a lot of moving parts. But the, the one thing that has been set in stone now is that the 787 production is in fact moving to South Carolina. Not a huge surprise. And John Ostar did a great job of kind of running down the timeline as far as making the case that this was inevitable for Boeing to, to move production to South Carolina. So a good piece to check out in the air current if you are so inclined. The other big US news is that we try and do our best to stay out of politics on this particular podcast purely because we're, we're steeped in it everywhere else and, and we really just want to talk about planes. But it affects, you know, upwards of 50,000 people. Directly, 50,000 directly. Yeah, directly, let alone, you know, beyond that. So the CARES Act, which included the payroll support program, or yeah, the, the PSP, I think, was the one that was directly affecting airline personnel. That expired at the end of September. It's now the 7th of October and no new funding has come through. We've discussed, you know, a little bit about whether or not we think it would be a good idea for standalone funding to come through for just airlines or or whether or not there should be, you know, some sort of more general assistance. But what I wanted to talk about here was that didn't happen. One way or the other, it didn't happen. And so airlines furloughed roughly 50,000 people. Most of those people were flight attendants, a good chunk were pilots. And then there were folks in ground handling, operation centers, gate agents, reservation agents, and so on and so forth. But you know, there's many thousands of people now out of work, because of the the expiration of funding, Congress and President Trump are 
kicking around different ideas. So who knows what will happen, but those furloughs have already gone through. So it'll be a while at least before people are, are back at work if something does come through. But we'll keep an eye on that as well as who knows what could happen. Literally nobody. Literally nobody. In the 36 hours between us speaking these words and this podcast releasing, literally anything could happen because nothing makes sense anymore. And our government is run by people who don't really seem to care about the actual outcome. So they're just playing around at this point, it feels like. But good luck, everybody. It's the best we can do. Let's move into some interesting things that have happened, I think, not entirely because of COVID, you know, if not entirely, then mostly. And we'll get through these pretty quick because we've got a great guest coming up a little bit later in the show, Steve Giordano of Jet Test and Transport, who has a very fascinating job, and we're going to learn more about that. So just to recap some of these things quickly, Wizz Air is going domestic in Norway, which I did not have. Everyone keeps saying, you know, my 2020 bingo card. How big of a bingo card do you have? I mean, I'm running out of spaces, but I did not have this one on mine. No, I'm going to have to repurpose one of my walls for the next bingo card. But I had not heard this before this, and that's something. (laughs) That's definitely something. So the idea is, and and this makes sense as far as Wiz is concerned. So so Wiz is actually, I think not Jason, because I don't think I could convince him to do this with me, but I'm going to look into Wiz a little bit deeper. We've done some stuff on the blog about Europe's low-cost carriers and looking into some of the data there, but I really want to dig into Wiz because they're being super aggressive and the way that they're doing is rather interesting because of all of the international issues now with who can fly where. Can we, you know, what type of test do we have to have? Do we have to have a test? Can I fly there? Can I not fly there? If I'm from there, but if I landed there, you know, all of that stuff. What they're saying is, well, we're just going to fly domestically because the domestic market has remained strong in Norway. So we'll just launch domestic flights. Why not? What does the Norwegian have to say about this? They've not been terribly enthused. I'd imagine. I mean, yeah, kind of a taste of their own medicine. This is kind of what. Norwegian has been doing elsewhere around the world for years, and now someone's doing it in Norway. That was, I I don't want to say indelicately pointed out to Norwegian, but it was pointed out not delicately, shall we say, in that respect. But, you know, a rather interesting situation developing. So we'll see what ends up happening both with Wiz in Norway specifically, but other airlines perhaps copying this model will be rather interesting to see if that happens. Yeah. I mean, Norwegian would never set up a subsidiary in, let's say, like Argentina and do domestic flight. To be fair to Norwegian, that did not last long. No. That, that was like, what, two months when that operated? Yeah, that was that was rough. So uh, Alaska's retiring 10 A320s early in their effort. I, that, I love the, these headlines. In an effort to return to an all-Boeing fleet, which completely ignores all of the other non-Boeing aircraft that they have in their fleet. Look, the Dash 8s and the E-175s, they don't exist because they're flown by Horizon, which is definitely not wholly owned by Alaska. Right. Again, <laughs> it is. Yeah. <laughs> Little light bulbs are going off. Yeah. All so, added context here: these they are retiring ten of the remaining A320s, of which they have a sizable chunk remaining. But these ten are the ten that they outright own. I believe the remaining A320s are leased, and they can't really just return them early. But it is definitely a sign that Alaska does want to 
return to an all Boeing fleet, asterisk star, put that up there. Although they do, they say they love the A321neo and, and it'd be unfortunate if they ditch those because that's what they operate the nice transcon from JFK to out to the West Coast with actually just Seattle these days. The LA flights only get the 7.3s. But those are lovely aircraft, and they said they were happy with them. So I guess we'll have to wait and see if they keep those as well. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. If not, maybe we can pick them up. These days, it might be possible. I mean, I just now saw, as we're recording, that Iceland Air sold a trio of 757s for $7 million each. So that's about 2 to $3 million. Uh, we can easily scrounge up that VC cash, right? Yeah, we'll, we'll get right on it. Yeah. In episode 96, Jason and Ian buy a plane. That sounds like a bad idea. Mm. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. I misspoke. It was $21 million total, so $7 million per aircraft, which they say is 2 to $3 million above book value. So, huh? huh yeah, we're going to need a little more capital. Maybe it was the three that have the special liveries. Mm, maybe they're the, the 300s. That could be interesting. Uh. So in other related news, Lufthansa says no new pilots for a long time. So they're encouraging folks who wish to become a pilot through their cadet program to choose other avenues or be prepared to wait for being needed, which is, I mean, the complete opposite of what we've been talking about for the past, what, five, six years with you know, there's a pilot shortage, there's a looming pilot shortage. There's not really a pilot shortage. They just need to pay them more. No, there's actually a pilot shortage and they need to pay them more. I mean, all of these things are now, you know, much as we talked about with, you know, everything else with the, the 737 MAX being, you know, upending the, the market. This is another complete reversal. Yeah. It's kind of a roller coaster ride and not a very good one that really no one wants to be on. Yeah. Speaking of rides no one wants to be on, actually, no, that's not true because they keep selling these things out and I still don't understand it. Asiana is doing a flight to nowhere. Starlux did a flight to nowhere, but that's not the interesting part of Asiana's thing. Asiana is converting an A350 to cargo. Well, that's fun. And I believe- That interests me. Yeah. Airbus actually has a, a modification kit out in the market for this to make it easier for them to do that. So A350 freighters, yeah, that's a thing. We'll also have soon E195 freighters. Did not see that one coming. No. Again, these are not actual freighter conversions. They're COVID right, right. combis, so no one's chopping a freight door into the side of these aircraft yet. That would be cool, an A350 true converted freighter. That would be cool. The cargo is really going to love the uh, added cabin humidity and higher pressure on board the aircraft. Well, maybe if you're transporting like flowers or fish or something, I don't sure. know. Anyway, so that's what we've got as far as specifically COVID-related or COVID-adjacent news. And I'm going to leave it there, and we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to go talk with Steve, who is a fascinating human being who has one of the most insane jobs in aviation. And we are going to learn all about it right after this break. So stay with us. Welcome back. We are now joined by Steve Giordano, who is the director of Jet Test and Transport. It is a very well-named company because they test and transport jets. So I want to applaud Steve on a very, very well-named company and welcome him to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Hey, Ian and Jason. It's great to be with you guys. You know, I've been a fan of your pod for a while. It's like probably the best uh, AvGeek pod out there. So, <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, Steve. And I do love a, a good company name that is what it says it does. Yeah, you know, there's no mystery there. We test and transport. And we're going to have a whole lot of questions about what you test and how you transport, because this is, I'm excited for this one. This is so interesting. So your company is probably one of a few that does this type of work around the world. And when I say around the world, I mean around the world. You know, you're based on the US East Coast, but you were recently in Australia. I saw that your company was also transporting a turboprop from the western half of the US all the way to Africa roughly at the same time. So give us kind of an overview of what the company does, you know, beside just, you know, testing and transporting jets. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so the company is really a global operation, like you said. At any given time during any week, we have operations going on all six of the populated continents. So, uh, you know, we could have, you know, five airplanes flying at the same time, which is pretty much, I think the max we've ever had going is like five or six at the same time, but all over the world and, you know, all types, like you say, I mean, we'll move uh, dash eights all the way up through triple sevens, seven, four sevens. We have not moved an A380 yet with the exception of the A380 and 350. We have actually moved, I believe every Western designed airliner on the market. So yeah, I live in Philadelphia one of my partners lives in Las Vegas and the other partner lives down in Lexington, Kentucky. And we are essentially a global business with no main office. We live out of our suitcases. We log a lot of frequent flyer miles. <laughs> you know, that's one of the fringe benefits is, I mean, I'm in the back of airplanes as often as I'm in the front of airplanes. So it is definitely a, a global operation. But you mentioned, you know, one of maybe a few companies. There, there are a few companies that do what we do. However, none of them really do it the same way. You know, in the business, it's kind of referred as the ferry business or uh, crew leasing. Those are the two terms you'll hear. But where we differ from, you know, the other companies that are out there that do this is we're the pilots. We're the guys that do everything. We plan. We have dispatchers on staff. We have a dispatch facility up in Calgary, you know, with two full-time 24-7 dispatchers. We have our own accounting team. I mean, obviously, the trip accounting is really complicated. We have vendors all over the world and, you know, each trip might have 40 or 50 vendors providing some sort of service in support of the trip. So, I mean, it's it's a large operation, but you know, we manage it with uh, about 10 people, full-time staff all over the place. Our competitors are more or less, you know, like crew leasing companies specifically, like so they'll keep a a database of pilots that are available in different parts of the world on different types and they're kind of like a temp agency, right, where they'll farm out trips to these different pilots as needed, but we you know, we have our own in-house crews and we have like an outer circle of, you know, contractors that we used for a number of years that we trust. It's a totally different way of flying. So it takes a special breed. So if I've got, just because unfortunately we're seeing all of these retired at roughly the same time, say I've got a half dozen 747s and I'm retiring, I, I want to take them from somewhere in Europe to somewhere in, you know, the desert Southwest of the US, uh, you know, Victorville, Murano, whatever. I call you up and I, I say, I've got six 747s. What else do I ask for? And what do you do on my behalf? So for the most part, our customers are repeat customers. We've been at this for almost 20 years now, and I'll, I'll get into a little later how we kind of started and stumbled upon this unique niche business. But you know, for the most part, our customers are the same people that we talk to and maintain relationships with 
you know, regularly throughout the year, you know, for many years. They know what we ask. They know what they need to tell us. But we do get, you know, new calls. And, and sometimes it's just as simple as, like you said, hey, I have seven or five 747s in, uh, you know, in Moscow and they need to go to Marana for storage. And then I start the questioning process. Uh, what registration are they on, right? That's that's key. You know, is the air, are they airworthy? Because a lot of the times the aircraft that we ferry around are not technically airworthy. That doesn't necessarily mean they're not safe to fly. It means they're maybe outside a sea check. Maybe they've been sitting for a little while. Maybe they have some lapsed airworthiness directives or service bulletins. And then the main reason that aircraft are not airworthy when they get to us is because, you know, they're not attached to an AOC. And that's really the void that we fill, right? So in order to operate large commercial aircraft, they're operated in accordance with a regulator approved maintenance program. So in Europe, EASA, right, it would be a camo. Others would also be a camo. Or in the US, it would be airlines that are operating with a maintenance manual that's essentially uh, compliant with what the regulator puts forth in the MPD. So those aircraft have to be continually on, I guess, a camp would be like the US version of a camo or a camo. So what we are is we're, we're essentially a company that takes possession of those aircraft and legally facilitates the movement of those aircraft under Part 91. So we're always operating under Part 91, but we're either operating on a what's called in Europe or Asia, a PTF, a permit to fly, which is like an exemption from a typical airworthiness certificate, or in the U.S. it's called an SFP, you know, which is basically a ferry permit or an SFA, a special flight authorization issued by the FAA. So we gather the airworthiness documents. It's very important that we understand the maintenance status of the aircraft. What registration it's on also makes a difference, right? As, as American pilots, we can fly N-regged aircraft only unless we are validated to a foreign license, which we regularly have to do. And then, of course, you have your transient registrations. And then beyond the regulatory side, we need to know what equipment is installed on the aircraft because the rules change all the time and it depends what airspace we're using. So, you know, if we're up over the North Atlantic, we're in, you know, NAT HLA airspace, the aircraft have to have CPDLC and ADSC in order to be compliant to be in the tracks. Anytime on the oceanic routes, we need to know whether there's HF installed, CPDLC, SATCOM. You know, and then we go down the list and we try to find out what engines are on board, what configuration the aircraft is in, the empty weight. We get a copy of the weight and balance, the avionics. We cross-reference every part number to make sure that they're in compliance with the route of flight. So there's a lot of little details that we start gathering up front. And then we send it to our planning team. And our planning team essentially puts together a list of requirements for the flight. And that process takes anywhere from five days to three weeks. I mean, some of the more complex trips will be prepping for many weeks. That answer was much more complicated than I expected. But when, like, as you were talking, I'm like, of course he needs to know that. Of course that's information that would be relevant. Of, of, right, you know, right. And, and I was watching, and I think maybe Jason or I posted about this on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, but we saw, I forget what aircraft type it was, but it went from South America, I think it was a 737-700 or something like that, but it went from South America to somewhere in Eastern Europe. And I think it was like a lease return or something like that. But it obviously didn't have the equipment on it to fly through the net tracks because it went the long way around. Right. And so of course, you know, those are important things that you need to know. So you get all of that information. And then how do you plan for your 
trip? Because obviously, I mean, you said you're based in Philadelphia and your partners are based elsewhere in the US. Obviously, you need to get to the plane somehow. Is it all planned for, and I guess this question takes on a lot more complication now than it did nine months ago. Oh man, yeah. How do you plan for those trips? I mean, you're obviously building in crew rest and things like that, but it seems like there's a bit more leeway as far as how you do things given the nature of the business. Yeah. So generally speaking, a lot of our customers early on would, would want to piecemeal stuff together and say, you know, well, we'll handle fuel in these stations and you'll handle ground handling in these stations and and so forth. We've gone to a completely inclusive model at this point. So if our customers want to try to kind of break things apart to you know save money in one place or try to maintain some sort of control, we literally don't accept missions like that anymore. We, we need to be fully involved in the planning because we've gotten good at it. You know, it's our guys that are working on the planning and dispatch side are flying all over the, you know, managing trips coming out of the most remote locations you could possibly imagine. I'm in Siberia all the time. I'm in, you know, Kinshasa and the DR Congo. I mean, you know, we're in and out of places where there are serious complexities. So to take any unknowns out of the equation, we operate inclusively. And crew travel works that way as well. So, you know, one of the, the rules of the business is nothing ever goes when it's planned, <laughs> you know, it, and it never goes earlier. It's always later. Everything delays, which is what makes it so difficult to use you know, pilots on days off and, and things like that, you know, managing where our crews are in the world and what they're going to next and, and so forth. That is a puzzle that, that I literally spend every day trying to solve from the time I wake up at like 630 in the morning until, <laughs> until about noon. And then, and then it starts over at 3 PM when something changes. Every trip is unique. And prior to COVID, it was really easy. We wouldn't make any decisions on travel until things were confirmed. And, you know, usually that's 24 hours in advance. But now with COVID, this has become, you know, unbelievably painstakingly difficult to plan a lot of these trips. We have to rely on private jets to get into a lot of locations. I've been on five private jets in the last year. You know, prior to this year, I've, you know, we owned a Citation for a little while. I guess it's a private jet, but, you know, we're talking about like Falcon, you know, we were on a Falcon 7X a couple of weeks ago. We were on a, uh, the smaller Gulf Streams, the X Astra jets. I was on one of those. We were on a Falcon 10 going to Juba, South Sudan, kind of in the beginning of COVID. So that's challenging. Of course, every country has different you know, entry requirements for, for customs. Some of them require PCR tests within 24 hours of entry, which is difficult if you're stopping seven times you know, to get from, from one location in the US to maybe India or something. And, and you know, the airlines have different rules with, you know, the capacity is down. I mean, it's a moving target. Every day, the rules are changing in different places. You know, we're regularly changing fuel stops mid-trip just to deal with a, a change in their customs requirements in these cities. Are there any aircraft that you've been dispatched out to, to go recover or test that present more of a challenge than your typical recovery? Yeah. You know, for the most part, we know what we're getting into ahead of time and for better or for worse, right? So certain customers that are in the game of moving airplanes around a lot, like the larger lessors, they have it together. We generally rely on what they tell us and take it as gospel and, and then proceed based on you know what the mission entails. Sometimes we have newer customers that we've never worked with before and the information that we get isn't necessarily clear. But the good thing is that we've developed relationships all over the world with, with maintenance facilities, on-site representatives. I mean, I pretty much know, I mean, I, I venture to say I know everybody. <laughs> I know thousands of people 
hundreds at least, high hundreds of people around the world that are involved on every level in this process. And so immediately I ask who the tech rep is and, and you know, we usually have some working rapport from trips previous and, you know, I get the real poop on the deal, so to speak. What are the problems with this aircraft? But yeah, you know, we've had to overcome things. We'll get to a place. 833 was an interesting one, right? When the, the VHF COM 833 requirements came into play in Europe initially a couple of years ago, we would get out to an airplane where we'd have to move through Europe. And although they tell us that the aircraft are 833 compliant, we go out there and get in the airplane, start up the APU, and you, you find that you're not 833 compliant. And then that starts, you know, that starts a lot of a chain reaction of a lot of logistics that need to be altered with regard to either changing the route, uh, applying for exemptions, or just going home and having them install a new radio set. Are there, you say you have a lot of repeat, you know, customers, is there a typical kind of mission that you do more often than any others? Like, you know, is it bringing the aircraft back to the lesser or is it delivering aircraft to a new operator or, or is it just kind of, you know, luck of the draw? Yeah, it's it's kind of luck of the draw. I mean, obviously right now, a lot of it is is parking aircraft into long-term storage, right? I mean, a lot of aircraft are coming offline at different countries and, and the lessors are, you know, they've been trying to figure out what they're going to do for the last six months. And really, you know, it comes down to where are these aircraft going to go? They, they pretty much all plan to put them into short-term storage initially. And then you hit that six-month mark and the airplanes need a gear swing and it needs to get inducted into long-term storage. The majority of the aircraft right now are going to storage. Historically, I would say it's 50-50, whether we're recovering something for storage or part out or whether we're delivering. We do both. We really have essentially three different missions. One is the delivery of aircraft. The other is the return of aircraft. And the other is the operational test, the functional test of aircraft. And, you know, for the last, I would say between 2014 and 2018, the bulk, I would say upwards of 75 to 80% of the aircraft that we dealt with were related to passenger to freighter conversion. So I've become really well-versed in that side of the industry. 737s, all three, well, I I guess it's all four variants now. And then seven fives and seven sixes, and soon will be triples. So we've done a lot of post freighter conversion testing. They're just operational test flights where we go through the manufacturer's test flight procedures, manual reversions, pressurization tests. You know, we test the avionics, we shoot ILS approaches, auto land a lot of times as part of the requirement. So we'll go out there and do the operational test, and then we'll deliver after it comes out of conversion. So. You know, I mean, it, that's that's generally it. We also have a, a DER on staff. We do certification. So we did some modification certifications over the years. I did a modular oil dispersant test, or uh, I guess the word for it is it's a 737 platform and it had tanks and it sprayed oil spill dispersant out over the sea. And so I did a bunch of testing where they were measuring droplet size on that. We've certified flat panel avionics on different platforms like the uh, 7.3 Classic and the MD-80. In those cases, we're working with FAA DERs, you know, through a series of test cards program that sometimes requires five to 10 flights. We've done passenger to freighter conversion certification test flying as well. So when airlines go out of business, it, it kind of happens somewhat suddenly at times. And we sometimes see those who are owed money from that airline, like airports specifically, take actions actually to make sure that they're 
that aircraft from the airline that just went bust doesn't leave until they get their chunk of change. I think yeah. we saw that recently a couple of years ago with Air Berlin, maybe. Or maybe it was actually Virgin Australia, where one of the airports actually parked like a tug behind the aircraft to make sure it doesn't disappear overnight, basically. Do you ever encounter any resistance at airports from either the airline that the aircraft is potentially being repossessed from or local entities? Absolutely. Yeah. Not not so much physical, like the parking of tugs. Like usually by the time we're on site, everything is cleared up. There have been, you know, if anything delays us once we're on site, it's typically regulatory in nature, right? So just like you said, if there's outstanding landing fees or an outstanding fuel bill, these get tied to aircraft registrations. And you know, in theory, we could take off, but what what prevents us from taking off is them preventing the issuance of the departure permits. So that has happened, and you know, we have the countries that we look at that are most complicated for for pulling aircraft out. India is is very very complicated. That doesn't surprise me for some reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right now, we're seeing the issues with the Jet Airways aircraft to some degree, although it's a lot smoother than Kingfisher. We were very involved in a lot of. Kingfisher returns, I guess is one way to call it. You know, the problem is, is it becomes a legal fight. So anybody who owns the aircraft or has has a debt note on the aircraft, they have to go through a really extensive process in the courts to be able to, you know, release liens and so forth so that the aircraft can be issued a departure permit. India is a problem. Chile has been a problem. Peru has been a problem. There's a few places in South America that are challenging. And then, of course, Malaysia and Indonesia are also very difficult from my experience. So you fly around the world bringing aircraft either to new operators, into storage, you know, returning from lease. You know, you're doing all of this logistical gymnastics. <laughs> yeah. And none of this sounds like a career that you can plan for. Yeah, absolutely not. One of the things that I really wanted to ask you is how did you get here? Man, I'll tell you what. The way I got here is I guess just a series of coincidences and, you know, good fortune and bad fortune mixed together and but the reason I stay here is it is absolutely the most interesting job in aviation, I think. I mean, you know, I'm sure there there are some that will argue that point, right? Pilots all are very prideful in what they do, but you know, where else can you fly, you know, 10 different aircraft types, you know, over 10 different days to 10 different countries with a beard, new uniform, a polo shirt and uh, you know, and a baseball cap and nowhere. I, I honestly think it's you know, it's the ultimate job for an ADD pilot like myself who always has to see a change of scenery in order to stay interested, but I got here, you know, I, I had a, my background is just a traditional airline pilot background coming out of the civilian world. You know, I was a flight instructor for a number of years. I was in the military, but I was uh, in a non-aviation role. Uh, I was in the Marine Corps. I was a flight instructor. I flew freight. I flew for a few regional airlines. I flew for 10 years at a national airline. And while I was at the national airline, in the very, very beginning, I was flying with a captain that was contracting for a company ferrying airplanes. And we were on a trip and I was flying into Billings, Montana. I remember the trip. And he said, do you want to fly with us to Bucharest next weekend? And I said, well, sure. Yeah. What do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? Bucharest, of course. <laughs> you know, I was flying my MD-80 to Billings, Montana and flying anything to Bucharest sounded fascinating. So yes, do I get paid for this? It was my first question. And not that it mattered. I think I would have done it for free. So yeah, you know, he was involved, uh, the guy that I was flying with was involved in this side of the business and he was a contract pilot for hire. 
And he's working for a few different companies and he kind of turned me on to it. We went and flew two DC 930s to Bucharest out of Arizona, out of Tucson, Arizona. And after doing that, you know, I had, you know, I'd never, I'd never even been overseas at that point. So, I mean, it was something else. I mean, my eyes were wide open and I said, man, this is awesome. I want to do this. So, you know, we ferried the airplanes over there. And of course I was on the phone with him as soon as we got back. When's the next one? <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that's kind of how it started. And, and I was picking up trips whenever I could. I would bid reserve at my airline and, you know, I would do my best to see trade days and give myself blocks of five, blocks of seven days off and then pick up whatever I could. And then I realized, you know, if I went out and get another type rating, like for example, a 737, which was my first type rating I paid for myself, I said, well, I'll go out and get a type so that I could have more opportunities to, to fly this kind of work and did that and then started flying more trips. And, you know, before I knew it, it was a big part of my life and I was always looking forward to doing more. And I actually flew as a contract pilot for a number of years together with my airline job, which was, of course, major, major juggling. <laughs> I had to uh, establish relationships with the crew schedulers. We were kind of small at the time, the airline that I was working for. And, you know, I would first started buying souvenirs for the crew schedulers overseas. And, and then it later turned into just straight payoffs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so what's it going to take to uh, trade my schedule out to somebody? So advertise my trip. So yeah, I mean, it started off kind of as a hobby and then we kind of were doing it so often that the, the gentleman, Gord Robinson, he's one of my two partners, him and I started doing it more and more. We formed a little LLC called Jet Test and Transport. And then we would work for the temp agency style crew leasing companies. And we started working for one exclusively, a gentleman by the name of Pete Adler. He was tragically killed in that, you remember that Sukhoi Superjet crash in Indonesia? Yeah, the one with the, uh, I won't get into it, but yeah. Yeah, they flew into Mount Salak there uh, during that demo flight. And so he was a passenger in the back of that that aircraft and he, he sadly died on that. And uh, we were working for him exclusively. He was one of the original JetBlue guys, actually. So after he passed away, the customers that he had were basically left you know, wondering what to do. And we kind of jumped in and started servicing those accounts. And we delivered a bunch of aircraft to Indonesia, a bunch of aircraft to uh, South Africa. And that's really how the company was born. We, we started picking up our own work from there. And over the course of about three or four years, we just, you know, we built up our customer base. We were traveling to the uh, air trade conferences around the world, meeting banks and lessors and kind of drinking beers with them and developing a relationship and a rapport. And before we knew it, they were calling us. And then we were proven that we were, we were a better option and, and the business grew. And in 2014, I made the executive decision that this was going to be the career that I pursue. And I left my job. I left my seniority number at the airline where I was in the top 10%. And I started doing it full time. We merged with another company called Avia Crew Leasing, brought on a third partner, Bob Allen, and the rest is history. You know, the three of us just kind of fell into it and the calls keep coming in and, and it's thriving. So if someone is interested in getting into this side of the business or this area of, of aviation, it seems to me that the main thing to do would be to have as many type ratings as you possibly can and be super flexible with your schedule. Yeah. Flexibility is absolutely critical. You know, It's one of those things, like I said before, nothing ever goes on time. So if somebody has an airline job and they decide they want to drop a trip so they have four days off to do it. There's no way that I can guarantee that the trip is going to be accomplished in those four days. So flexibility is key. The aptitude for doing it 
you know, any pilot is capable of doing it, I guess. But I've found that the non-SCAD folks are, are by far the best suited for this mission in that, you know, a lot of pilots that are at, you know, no disrespect to anybody at the mainline carriers, but they show up, they get their dispatch release, they go. This business requires just thinking on the fly and just constant changes in the ability to operate tired and worn out and kind of figure out how to overcome obstacles as they come up, you know, in foreign countries where you don't speak the language. But, you know, jettest.aero is our website and and we do have a place for pilots to put their names on the database list and and we do sort those by type. And I do bring guys on, you know, guys and gals on from time to time to pick up trips when we get super busy. If they're very successful and if it works, if there's a good vibe between the pilot and our company, they they get called more often. So I guess the final question I will ask you, and maybe this is a very open-ended one, but what's the craziest thing that has ever happened? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, I'd imagine the answer to that question has changed over the years, right? It has to have. You know, I, yeah, I, I think I have developed a memory of a goldfish when it comes to these trips because you know every, every couple of weeks I, something happens. I'm like, man, that was the craziest thing that I've ever seen. It's very irregular. The, even even the routine trips are irregular things happen, right? So, and, and of course, there's plenty of things that I probably shouldn't say that I've seen it done in this, in this highly regulated industry. But yeah, you know, we've had a lot of crazy. Everyone always asks, what's the what's the craziest thing you've ever seen? And and you know, we've delivered planes into, you know, for government contractors into Bagram and Afghanistan. We've been in and out of war zones. You know, I mean, I was even crazy stuff that happens on the trips. I was in a taxi once in India that ran into a bunch of pedestrians. And it's, it's, you know, crazy things happen when you're, when you're on this side of the business, but it's hard to break it out into just one. I can tell you one of the scariest moments for me uh, was early, early in, in my career doing this stuff. We were taking a DC-9 into Africa and actually it was into Kinshasa it was a DC-930. So, I mean, you really only have about four hours of range in that thing. We were not RVSM as well. So we were going between Casablanca and Dakar, Senegal, and we had a mechanical uplatch physically break on the right main landing gear. And all the hydraulic fluid immediately, you know, left, departed the airplane and the uplatch broke. So the landing gear dropped down into the slipstream on the, the right main landing gear and it was in my late 20s, I think. So I, I certainly had less of a fear of things than I probably would now in my in my older age. But, you know, of course, the prime concern at that point was fuel. We have a landing gear in the slipstream. It's the middle of the night over the Western Sahara. And our fuel burn has now gone up like 30%. And, you know, Bob and my, myself, we're, we're looking, you know, we're essentially if we had whiz wheels and E6Bs, we'd be on them. We didn't. So instead we had papers and pencils and we were trying to figure out, you know, are we going to make it to Dakar? Because if we don't, there's really nowhere else to land. And at one point I ran the calculations and and I was like, yeah, we're going to make it. We're going to have 500 pounds left. And and then he was like, I don't think we're going to make it. <laughs> you know, there's literally nowhere else to go. There's no other airport. You know, landing in Western Sahara in the middle of the night is not advised without permission. And I'm not even sure there were airports. So so that was pretty frightening. We ended up landing in Dakar. I think we had 400 pounds on the gauges of fuel remaining. I mean, that's not even really enough for a go around. That was incredibly frustrating and very scary. And, you know, that was a lot of years ago. It stands the test of time. I would say that's probably one of the craziest. Another thing, I wasn't actually on this trip. I was on the ground. It was actually a little wilder being on the ground. But are you guys familiar with Majuro, the Marshall Islands? 
as familiar as one can be with without having been there, <laughs> I guess. It's essentially it's a shoelace in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It's sinking, isn't it? It doesn't that island chain have like a limited number of years before climate change and, and sea level rising obliterates it? Yeah, not so much sinking as the ocean rising around it, you know, like the Maldives and all those little island chains. It's sadly it is going it is disappearing due to climate change. But, you know, I've I've been there many, many times. In fact, I'll be there next week on my way to New Zealand with a 737-400 freighter. So we're taking an aircraft back. My partner and another one of our pilots were taking an aircraft back from Kuala Lumpur, bringing it to the United States. It was a 737-300 passenger aircraft. And the aircraft had a bad APU. So everywhere we went, we had to arrange uh, an air start at every airport in between. And Majuro told us they had an air start. They did have an air start. And they landed, shut down both engines, took fuel, hooked up the air start. And as soon as they pressurized the machine, it literally exploded. It, It burst into a million pieces. And there is nothing else around Majuro. I mean, there's nothing. There's Kwajalein, which is a military installation, which you can land at as an alternate. They did not have an air start that they could spare. You know, Hawaii's a good six-hour flight away. The Philippines, you know, good five hours, five, six hours away. There's there's nothing near there. It's, it's, it's in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So they were stuck. <laughs> I mean, they were legitimately stuck. There was no way to get that airplane started without, without air. And so they ended up showing up at the airplane every day, you know, trying to convince, well, they were on the phone with me via sat phone. This was, this was a while back, so there was no cell phone service there at the time. Eventually, what we decided to do was we needed to fabricate buddy ho- a buddy start hose. Have you guys ever heard of a buddy start? No, but I can see where you go with it. I've heard of this recently because I feel like there was a story recently of a plane that got stranded and they had to fabricate the same thing. Yeah. It used to be a more mainstream procedure. So, and the reason I remember it is that the airline that I was at that was operating MD-80s, for some reason it was, it was in our procedures. And I remember looking at it when I was in initial ground school back in 2004 saying, people do this? And they said, no, nobody does this, but uh, it was in our manuals anyway. So what it is, it's, it's a pneumatic hose. One end of the pneumatic hose has a metal prong on it, right? So what it, that metal prong does is it goes into the pneumatic inlet of an aircraft, which has a flapper valve on it, which prevents air from coming out when nothing is connected to it. So it pushes up the flapper valve and it allows pressurized air from the bleed system to flow through that hose. Then the other end of the hose is hooked into the air start, the pneumatic port on the buddy airplane, the the recipient airplane. And you're essentially able to take air from the bleed system on the donor aircraft and push it over to air on the receiver aircraft in order to start the aircraft. So nobody's produced one of these hoses in a, in a very long time. I ended up getting on the phone you know, for, in the United States. I was at my house, called all the hose manufacturers I could find. I finally found one that was willing to manufacture this for us. They built it within about five days. And then we shipped it to Honolulu. And then what's that? airline that flies fish between Honolulu and Japan and Majuro. It's Pacific something aviation. They used to run 727s. They have 75s now. I called them. They, they agreed to allow us to put this buddy start hose on their fish freighter. And they flew it from Honolulu to Majuro. But then once they got there, the crew said, no, we're not doing, we're not going to give you a buddy start. I mean, we're just delivering the hose. So the crew did not oh, it wouldn't agree to do it. It wasn't in their manuals. They refused to do it. 
And so then I had my guys sitting over there in Majuro with a hose, with a, a dead airplane. I think it's like day eight at this point. And we were back to the drawing board. So anyway, long story short, what they ended up doing was they went to multiple ATM machines. I think there's probably four on the island. They withdrew as much cash as they possibly could. And they hung out at the airport until that 727 came back with a different crew. And they paid each of the guys a thousand bucks to look the other way while Buddy started while Buddy started the aircraft. Got it started. It miraculously worked. And they left. And they left with a lot of fresh tuna that they were, they picked up for very cheap on the island. That is kind of amazing. <laughs> I'll have to send you guys a picture to put it on the crew, the, uh, the notes. Or I'll, Absolutely. I'll for you. <laughs> they were all sunburned. They looked like castaways. They like Tom Hanks. These are the kind of stories you, you don't get when you just, you know, are, are flying a 737 around. No, that's not going to happen into buildings, is it? Yeah, exactly. No. It, it got to the point where on that trip, if we hadn't found that solution, we were about ready to just push the aircraft off into the ocean and create an artificial reef, you know? Customer wouldn't have been happy, but... That solution has been discussed many times on this podcast. And, and so <laughs> if that would have, that we would have solved a number of problems with that. Steve Giordano is the director of Jet Test and Transport, a man who has probably, I would say, one of the craziest jobs in aviation, certainly nowadays. Steve, tell us how we can follow some of your travels. Where can we find you on social media and the like? So I am on Twitter. My screen name is uh, sgiordano77, and I post when I can trips when they're in progress, generally trips that I'm on. We also have an Instagram, and that's at Jet Test and Transport. It's also like my personal Instagram, so you can see pictures of my dogs and my family as well. <laughs> but it's, it's mostly aviation stuff. It's mostly trips that we're on. And then we're also on LinkedIn, and I post a whole lot of stuff on LinkedIn, Jet Test and Transport, one word. And we're developing a bit of a following there as well. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. This has been hands down one of my favorite conversations in 95 episodes of doing this podcast. So thanks again for joining us. And we will absolutely be coming back to you in the future because I want to hear more about what you're up to. Well, let's do one from the road. I'd be happy to have you guys along on a flight sometime, both of you. One day. Done. <laughs> we'll get you some crew badges. I'll choose a good one if the customer is okay with it and, and we'll do it. Perfect. Jason and I are both on board the moment we can, you know, go anywhere. Absolutely. I know John Ostrower is waiting to do it too. <laughs> Let's get all three of you guys. Oh dear. I'm Be for what you wish for. <laughs> Steve Giordano, Jet Test and Transport, thank you so much for joining us. And we have been very lucky to have you on the show. Thanks again. Thanks, Steve. Cheers, guys. Welcome back. And that was the most fun I have had in a very long time talking about aviation. That's up there with our, our conversations with Andrew Poor about ketchup. I mean, you put those two guys together and I'm, I'm almost afraid to see what happens. I want to watch that crossover episode. I'm here for that. Absolutely. I don't really have anything to top after that. So I, I feel like we should just end the show with a couple of housekeeping items. We screwed up, somebody else screwed up, and something that we could have talked about but has already happened, but we're still going to mention it anyway because it's a kind of a neat thing. So we'll start with that one. The British Airways 747s have departed London Heathrow for the final time. 
or they will when you know that actually happens and you're already listening to this podcast. Right. So when the podcast comes out Friday morning, it will be a day after this has happened. But on Thursday, the final 747s that are at Heathrow will depart. One is going to St. Athens. One is going to Kemble and they will be retired. There's a non-zero chance that one of them will be kept around in some sort of way. Yeah, I've heard those rumors. But as of now, they are just rumors. Nothing is confirmed. So we'll have to wait and see for that. But hopefully you, you caught the departure. And if you didn't, we'll put a link to the what I assume will be by now copious amounts of photos and videos of these particular aircraft departing Heathrow for the final time. Jason and I made a mistake. Jason made more of a mistake than I did, but it was also my mistake for going along with Jason's mistake. We are, of course, referring to what many of you caught and emailed us and tweeted us about and sent us Facebook messages about. There are two airports in Berlin, and we got them wrong. I blame it on the fact that I did not get to go to Germany this year because I haven't gotten to go anywhere this year. So I didn't get my German airport refresher certification. And I do know that is a course that you take when you are in Hamburg every year. Of course. Uh, so so I, I do appreciate that you are missing your, your German airport geography quiz and recertification. So we messed up. We apologize. They are, in fact, different airports if you were following along on last episode. And so you couldn't just take off from Tegel to, to land at the new airport. That would be impossible. You could try. <laughs> you could try, but you would end up at the wrong airport again. And finally, a t-shirt update. Uh, see, this I have nothing to do with this one. This is all you, Ian. No, this is all me. I should have made this your responsibility too, but I didn't think that far ahead. In any case, given all of the issues that have happened with the US Postal Service and ordering things and receiving things and, and getting things shipped, we are, of course, still working through everything. If you live in the United States and you participated in our, our t-shirt giveaway, they should be on their way to you by the time you listen to this episode. There are a few folks who are still remaining that live in the US. If you live outside the US, it's 50-50 right now. We're waiting on additional shirts and then those will have to be shipped out. So we will keep you posted. We're going to get to everybody eventually, I promise. And I am truly sorry for how long this has taken, but it's it's been less than exciting to get all of that processed. But we're getting it done and t-shirts are moving through the, the global supply chain. I wonder which German airport they're stuck at. <laughs> they're waiting for the new Berlin airport to start operations in November. Any minute now. Any minute now. So there we are. Episode 95 of AvTalk. And if you have ideas for what we should do for episode 100, I am all ears. We had a plan, but I doubt that in the next 10 weeks, things will change enough to where we can enact that plan because it involved travel and some other things. So that plan got shoved aside. But if you have an idea of non- transitory plans, that something that we could do for episode 100. We are all ears. Email us at podcast.fr24.com if you have any comments, questions, suggestions about the show. I read all of them and forward most of them to Jason, except the good ones. I save those for myself. Aww. 
This has been episode 95 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz and thanks for listening. <laughs>